All right. Good morning. You can have a seat. Thank you for uh, joining us. Thank you for for everybody uh, online who's worshiping with us as well. Uh, for those of you who are guests, my name is Tim. I'm the pastor here at CF. Uh, again, thank you for, for jumping in with us. A um, couple of announcements before we get going. Um, big ones are that uh, we have our Tuesday night prayer time that's happening at 6.30, uh, 6.30 and Tuesdays on Zoom, uh, where we're spending some time being scripture, uh, just be together, lifting one another up, lifting our city, our world up. Uh, and so it's been great and creative and fun. Um, and so if you uh, are available Tuesday nights at 6.30, we've been sending out the, the Zoom link. Um, uh, if you don't get emails from us and you would like to, uh, you don't get them because I don't have your email. So uh, if you want to use the Connect card that's in the seat back of the seat you're sitting in, you can give us your email, leave it in the offering plate in the back. We'll get you on the mailing list. We don't spam you, uh, I promise. And so we would love to just follow up and be able to connect with you on that um, so we have that on Tuesday nights, and then Friday afternoons we've been putting out a video uh, to help us as we go into the weekend with, again, just prayer and scripture, really helping to try and rebuild some of the rhythms that might have gotten lost or forgotten about uh, throughout some of COVID um, and all of the quarantine and everything that happened. And so uh, we have those things out right now. We are finishing up some details on getting community groups launched here in the next few weeks. So um, as that gets solidified, we will get that information out to you as well. We have our kids, um, Grace Place um, program, at home program anyway, uh, that's going to get launched here in the next few weeks as well. We got a lot of things coming up as we start to kind of revamp and, and re-ramp up into things uh, as we walk through the fall. And then just a, uh, another reminder, just uh, if you have, uh, if you can remember to, uh, we're sending out that email every week to get an RSVP to get a general idea who's here, who's not here, helps us with planning and such. And so um, please try to remember to do that. If you can't do that or you forget to do that and you want to come to church, come to church. Um, we're not gonna we're not gonna stop you from coming. So um, that's it for announcements. Open your Bibles. We're gonna be in First Peter three this morning. First Peter three. We're gonna finish up chapter three this morning. Um, and as you're turning there, I'd like to thank um, our very own Peter, who has kind of just taken upon himself since we got back into uh, being together. He has kind of become our AV team, um, making sure there's words on the screen. You can hear me. Um, the live feed's coming through, all of those things, and when there are issues with those things, it definitely is never about Peter, because he knows what he's doing back there. It's just about how I got playing with buttons during the week, and I messed something up. Um, but Peter, thank you for everything you're doing. Um, as we get launched here in the next few weeks, and, and we're getting more into rhythms, if you would like to jump in and help, we have a few spots help with serving our church. One of those is uh, AV, and we'd love to get you plugged in. You don't have to have computer uh, training or knowledge. We'll get you trained and what you need to do back there. So if you'd like to do that, you can use those connect cards I talked about uh, and get connected that way. So um, 1 Peter 3 is where we'll be this morning. And um, we live in a time and in this world where we are divided and can be divided on many, 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 many things. We divide ourselves by zip code. We divide ourselves by political affiliation, by wealth, by north side versus south side, by whether or not you put ketchup on a hot dog. You don't. Um, things of that nature. We will find any reason as humans to try and make my way versus your way. And we find these little camps, even within the church, we find ways to divide ourselves, to segregate ourselves, to put ourselves into these little camps and pockets. And it's not always helpful. We see division around us all the time. And we could use some unity. We could use something to unite us, something to bring us all together to be on the same page. 
And that's kind of what we have this morning in today's passage. Because there is one thing that unites all theologians, all pastors across all denominations, is that the passage of Scripture that we are looking at this morning is one of the more obscure and in many ways hard to read in all of the Bible. It is something that has baffled lots and lots of people. People who are much smarter than I am have written lots of books to try and figure out what it is we're talking about here this morning. So why in the world would we get into that this morning? We get into it because it's the next verses in the letter to 1 Peter. And we're walking through 1 Peter. And this is what we tend to do as a church. And this right here is one of the reasons why we do this on Sundays the way we do it. Because I, as your pastor and as a preacher, don't ever want to hide from the difficult topics or passages. And I want us and I want you to see as a church that, yes, there are sometimes we get to things in the Bible that can confuse, that can be hard to read. But the Bible is still always accessible. Now, sometimes it means you've got to do a little legwork. You've got to lean on and stand on the shoulders of some of those theologians and pastors and people who have spent time doing the study to kind of help you understand what's going on in the text. But I want you to see that you can and should, outside of Sunday mornings, always be able to engage with what God has for us in the Bible. So we're going to deal with this tricky element of Scripture this morning. But ultimately, that's not the main focus of this passage. The main focus, the big picture of all of the Bible is always and above everything else, Jesus. It's his importance, his glory, his sovereignty, his love, his grace. That's the main focus. He is the point within all of this book. And so that's what we're going to spend the bulk of our time on today, is talking about and worshiping and celebrating Jesus. So we got a lot of work to get through today. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. Heavenly Father, you are good, and you're good all the time. And Lord, we come this morning seeking to hear from you, seeking your presence, seeking your rest. We come to church this morning, expecting to encounter you and hear from you. And so, Lord, whatever distractions, whatever pain, whatever baggage that we brought with us here this morning, help us to put those things aside. Help us to dwell and fix ourselves on you. Lord, let there be clarity this morning. As I preach, Lord, let nothing come from my lips that isn't from you. Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him." We'll stop there. There's more than enough to keep us busy this morning. Um, All right, so what we're going to do, how we're going to break this up is we're going to jump into what is uh, the trickier part of this passage, um, get that kind of handled out of the way, and then we'll go into the rest of the text. So the difficult part, if you didn't catch it when I was reading it, really starts at the end of verse 18 and goes through 19 and 20. Um, 
talking about Jesus is that he is made alive in the flesh in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. There is much debate about who is Jesus preaching to, when did this happen, and why in the world is Peter talking about it? Now we can spend a lot of time talking about a lot of different interpretations. We're going to whittle this down, and we're going to talk about the two main interpretations of this passage, kind of widely accepted interpretations. I'm going to give you those quickly, uh, and then I'll give you a little bit of an idea of where I kind of land on this, and then we can move forward, all right? There's two main interpretations. The first one being Noah was building the ark and did that for 100 years, 120 years, I think it is. And while he was building the ark and preparing for this massive flood, God told him about he was preaching. And he was preaching to the people repentance, right? God has told Noah, the world has gotten so evil and so wicked, I am going to flood the world, and we are going to restart this thing. But Noah, you and your family, I want you to build this ark. You are going to be part of this restart. And throughout that whole time, Noah is preaching, repent. Something bad is coming. Turn away from the evil over and over again. And so this first interpretation says that this preaching that Noah was doing throughout this whole time was done by and through the Spirit of Christ in him. And so when it talks about the Spirit, talks about Jesus in the Spirit, it's talking about the Spirit of Christ in Noah preaching through Noah. And so then the spirits in prison that Peter refers to are those people who rejected Noah's message of repentance. This interpretation is supported by, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 11 of 1 Peter, he talks about, uh, with the Old Testament prophets, and he talks about them inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and their subsequent glories. So he talked already about this idea that the Spirit of Christ was in those Old Testament prophets. Remember a while ago, we talked about this for those of you who are here, that those Old Testament prophets preaching about the Messiah didn't really have a full understanding of what the Messiah was or who it was going to be and were standing on their tiptoes, as it were, trying to see, trying to get an understanding of this Messiah to come. And so Peter's saying that same, that Spirit of Christ, this interpretation says that Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah at this time. Also, if you read Peter's second letter, he refers to Noah as a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. And so the idea with this interpretation would be that Peter is using Noah to illustrate that he was preaching a message of salvation at a time and in a place nobody wanted to hear it, and they rejected him for it. But ultimately, he is vindicated by God. And in the same way, the church in Peter's time, as well as we ourselves today, are to preach faithfully, be faithful to the gospel, even as we are rejected and may suffer and will be one day vindicated, as Peter has been talking about throughout the end, the middle half of 1 Peter 3, and talking about suffering for righteousness, suffering for the sake. That's a good, valid interpretation. It fits, it connects, it makes sense, it tracks. Here's the second interpretation. The second one is that Jesus, after he dies on the cross, he is dead in the flesh, alive in the spirit, goes to those spirits who are fallen angels, who sinned in the days of Noah, which you can read in Genesis 6. If you're looking for something to study this week, Genesis 6 and the whole story of Noah, go back to it if you haven't in a long time. It has a lot of twists and turns. And the fact that we have somehow taken the story of Noah and like decorate nurseries based on this story considering some of the elements and death and decay that happened in that story, 
I don't really understand how that happened. But Genesis 6, we have these spirits who are cohabitating with the women of earth. They were cast into prison, are awaiting final judgment. And as they are there, as they are awaiting the final judgment that we see in Revelation, Jesus goes to them proclaiming a message of victory over sin, death, hell, declaring his sovereignty in all things. This interpretation is supported by, um, without exception, in the Bible, the word for spirits used in the plural here is every time it is used in the Bible is used to talk about supernatural beings, angels uh, or demons, fallen angels. It never is used to talk about humans. Also, the idea of spiritual prison is also used in reference only to supernatural beings, never used about humans. Um, Again, you can go to 2 Peter 2, 4, and you can go to Jude 6 and 7 that talk and kind of solidify that interpretation. So the idea here would be Christ suffered unjustly. He dies at the cross, but he is vindicated and sovereign in all things. And so you too, Christian, as you suffer for the gospel, will be blessed and vindicated because of Christ. Once again, good interpretation. Fits with what he's talking about. Fits as a mode and an encouragement. Christians, hold on. Christians, for the gospel. We've seen this play out. Christ suffered unjustly. Christ is risen. Christ is sovereign over all things. You will be blessed, Christian, if you will persevere in the gospel. All of these things fit in the text. Personally, this second one is the one where I land. I do so humbly holding this very loosely. This is not a hill I'm going to die on. I realize I may be wrong. I realize if you guys stick around for 10 or 15 years and we do a loop and we come back to 1 Peter in 10 or 15, 20 years, I might preach this and say, nope, he's definitely talking about preaching in the spirit of Noah. I think either one of those interpretations lands you in the same place, that being staying faithful to the gospel in the midst of suffering, you will be vindicated. But I think language-wise and context-wise, it makes the most sense for me right now uh, to fall in that second category. There are other interpretations to this text, and some of them have led to some truly faulty and straight-up heretical teaching. This idea of you can have a second chance after you die, that you have a second chance to be saved, That's kind of somehow birthed out of this passage, and there is no scriptural context for that whatsoever. These two kind of make the most sense and I think are most in line with scripture. And like I said, I've bounced between them throughout this week. This is a section of scripture that has a lot, and we can debate and converse about it over and over again. But ultimately, I don't think this is a main doctrine kind of issue. The great Martin Luther, fantastic theologian, a man whose shoulders we stand on in a lot of ways, said this about this passage. He said, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I have no... Sorry, that's my interpretation. So that I do not know for certainty what Peter means. Martin Luther said, I don't know. That's where I land. I don't know. If you know the right answer, PastorTimCF at gmail.com. I will welcome your and I will welcome your your critiques. Um, so that is kind of the main sticking point. There's another one we're going to get to, but let's step back for a second. What's the point of this passage? What is Peter trying to communicate to us? What's he been talking about throughout this second half of chapter three, since verse eight? Really, it's suffering for righteousness' sake, the vindication and sovereignty of Christ. Christ suffered. Christ is vindicated. 
we may suffer. And if we do so for the gospel's sake, for righteousness' sake, we will be vindicated because of and by our faith in Christ. That's what Peter is talking about in this section. A pastor who I respect greatly and listen to um, often and read often is Pastor Alistair Begg. And he says often when he comes, uh, when he preaches, he says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. I enjoy talking and debating theology, scripture, something that's a passion. I enjoy doing it. I like getting lost in the weeds of those kind of things. And like I said, this is a conversation we could sit in all day, but ultimately we have to ask, what's the point? What about this text encourages? What about this text challenges and fills us up so that we can go and live out this existence as the elect exiles that God has made us to be. And the reality is it's this, it's that Christ suffered, Christ is vindicated. We may suffer and if we do so for the gospel's sake, we will be vindicated because of and by our faith in Christ. And that's what Peter wants to talk about in verse 18. In verse 18, he says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In this section, Peter talks about suffering for doing good, suffering for righteousness' sake, being blessed for suffering. And there is no better example of what that means, what that looks like, than Jesus himself. Christ suffered once for sins, not his sins, not his, not his rebellion. He is righteous. He is pure and perfect and sinless. He is without rebellion. He is the most fully and complete person to have ever lived. He is the very beginning and essence of righteousness. No, he suffered not because of his sin, but because of ours. Not because of what he did, but because of what we have done, are doing, are gonna do. Sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he, the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, Jesus takes our sin, and with it, the punishment that we deserve, and in exchange gives us his perfect righteousness, his perfect standing with God the Father. His perfection is given to us through his destruction. See, the gospel is good news. Sometimes we lose sight of that. Sometimes we forget the gospel is good news. Good news of great joy for all people. But before we can talk about the good news, we've got to talk about the bad news. And the bad news is that, as Paul says in Romans 3, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The bad news is no one is good. We have all sinned. Anything contrary to the holy, glorious perfection of God is sin. We have rebelled against God through our sin, and in any rebellion, there will be consequences. Paul says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have all sinned, and for it, we deserve death. If you're going to go to war, there's going to be casualties. We on our own are hopeless and helpless to fix the situation that we find ourselves in. And that moment, our hopelessness, our helplessness, that is where the good news of the gospel begins. Because in that second half of 623 of Romans, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says also in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we heard in 1 Peter. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Even though we, by our very nature, are not only undeserving, but ill-deserving of anything good, of any reprieve, God steps in anyway. 
The love of God which sent Christ to earth to die for us is unconditional. It expects nothing in return. It is not based on our ability or character or conduct that we can offer God. It is wrapped up solely and wholly in who he is. Jesus lived life to the fullest. He was the most human to have ever humaned. He lived and experienced life the way it was made to be, free of rebellion from sin, free of having that separation between God and humans. He had perfect relationship with God even as he walked this earth, and it is that perfection which allows him, when he is falsely arrested, tried, beaten, and executed, to die, not just as another person dying on a cross, but to die and affect humanity throughout all time. Christ died for us. And in doing so, God's justice and God's love are both simultaneously put on display in the death of Jesus. The justice of God was satisfied because Jesus' death allowed the full and complete punishment for sin to be poured out on him. Every sin Jesus took the punishment for, every sin from Adam and Eve biting into that fruit all the way up to the cross to every sin that will be ever committed all the way until he returns, every sin on him was laid. Justice was taken care of in that moment. God's love is also on display because in doing this, God was fixing the relationship that had been broken by sin. The possibility for peace between us and God, between one another, is once again available because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, it says in Romans 10. Yes, Jesus died, actually, physically, historically. That's a fact. Another fact is that three days later, he rose from the dead. And that fact changes everything. It proved Jesus is the ultimate authority on who lives and who dies. He has control over life and death. It validates his claims to be God. It validates his divinity. It vindicates him in his suffering. His resurrection proved that while sin might exist, and boy, we know it, And yes, sin can still do damage, and it can still do things to ruin and attack this life. Sin, Satan, they do not have the ultimate authority on this world. They are subject to the power and authority of Jesus. If you will believe in that and that alone, not that plus you, not that plus your abilities, your good works, we are saved by grace alone, which means we didn't do anything to deserve it, through faith alone, not anything you have done or are going to do in Christ alone in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The righteous died for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to God. He, in his death and resurrection, bridges the gap that existed between us and God because of our sin. He died in the flesh and is alive in the spirit. Our salvation was the work of the full and triune God working together to bring us to glory. God the Father, out of love, compassion, mercy, justice, sends God the Son to live and to die, to bear the burden for our sins, to bear the burden our sin demands. And by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus rose from the dead, and in doing so, confirms his sacrifice was accepted, confirms that he is sovereign over all, over the living and the dead, over the earth and the heavens, over all of existence. What is seen and unseen, all of it belongs to and is subject to Jesus. And so Christ proclaims his victory, his triumph over the evil, over the sin, over those spirits who are not all-knowing, right? The fallen angels, Satan, sin, 
they, Satan and demons are not all-knowing. They're watching. They're paying attention. They're studiers of mankind, sure, but they don't know how things are going to play out. They don't know ahead of time how things are going to happen. And so when Jesus dies, undoubtedly they know that God poured out his wrath toward Jesus on the cross. But then he goes and proclaims to them, much like Joseph did to his brothers in Genesis 50, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God used this for good. Jesus can go and declare to the spiritual forces of darkness what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because yes, Good Friday is ugly and hard and messy and dark, but we call it good for a reason. Because in the darkness, the light of the world shone through and expelled the power and grip that darkness of sin might have on us. Jesus declares to those spirits who can do nothing to stop the justice of God from being carried out, hey guys, Sunday's coming. The stone is going to get rolled away. The tomb's going to be empty. The resurrection is happening, as God promised way back in Genesis 3. Yes, the serpent may have indeed bruised the heel of Jesus, but Jesus, the Messiah that God had promised, the one who is going to redeem and restore all things, he crushed the head of that snake. The righteous died for the unrighteous so that he might present us as holy and acceptable to God, not as rebels and enemies, but as his sons and daughters. Peter continues to talk about Noah, to talk about this, and you can't talk about Noah for very long without talking about the flood, right? Those things go together. And so we see in verse 20, he talks about Noah and the flood, and he talks about how Noah and his family, because of the ark, were brought safely through the waters that flooded the earth as God's judgment rained down on it. And just as those people were saved, involving a situation with water, Peter connects our salvation and water as well. And so we see in verse 21, here's the next thing that people like to talk about in this passage. Verse 21 says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That is a very loaded statement. Because if we cut and paste right there, it would seem the idea of faith alone, through grace alone and Christ alone, doesn't matter. It would seem that the idea that what Christ did on the cross really doesn't have all that much impact on us. As long as we can go find some water and get dunked in it, we're good. We have found something that we can do ourselves to save us. The act of baptism does not save you. How can it? Right? I mean, let's just take CF for a second. Right back here behind me, that's our baptismal. I've had the the joy and blessing to baptize a handful of folks back there. Many people have been baptized in that baptism. The water that comes, that fills that tank up, is just Chicago City municipal water. It's got a little taste in it. It's fine. You get used to it. There's nothing special about that water. For those who've been baptized in Lake Michigan, it doesn't matter. It's water. Why would doing it here or in a lake or anywhere else for that matter, why would this idea of being dunked underwater have some kind of power to save us. The physical act of baptism does not save you. But that doesn't mean it's not important. Because it is. And at the time that Peter is writing, baptism was intertwined with becoming a Christian. See, for us now and today, the typical pattern that usually happens is somebody gets saved. Somebody, God, softens somebody's heart. They accept Christ. They become a Christian. 
And then after a little while, we get them plugged into a church. We get them plugged into Bible study. We have them be around for a while. We get to know them for a while. And then maybe in a few months, maybe in a year, then they get baptized. Whenever the schedule allows for the church to go ahead and baptize them. It's this like multi-step, multi-month, multi-year process. At the time Peter is writing, all of that was combined into one. You confessed Jesus, you found the closest body of water, and you were baptized immediately. And immediately were part of the family of God, were immediately were part of the church. The idea of someone being a Christian, but not being baptized and not being a part of the church was unheard of. It did not compute. If you were a Christian, you were baptized and part of the community. But that doesn't mean it was the saving thing. It was the thing after the saving thing. It was after the confession of sins. It was after putting your faith in Christ. It was in response to what Jesus has done. And that's exactly what Peter says. Peter here says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Not as a removal of dirt. Not the physical act that saves you. He makes it very clear for all of Peter's shortcomings throughout the Bible. This is a moment where I think he wrote, baptism saves you, and then he realized what he wrote and just said, but that's not what, hold on, let me get to what I want to make. And that's what he does. Because it's not about just the actual physical act of being baptized. We are not saved by the waters of baptism. Not the removal of dirt. But what Peter says is, I lost my place. Peter says, baptism does not save you, not the removal of dirt, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An appeal to God for a good conscience. Appeal is to seek after an answer to a question. So we are saved not by the dunking in the water, but what that represents and what that is in response to, which is the seeking after God for a good conscience. The seeking after God for a change of heart. The seeking after God for a change of mind, a change of desires, a change of seeking after God for a change of new life and new hope, all of which is only found through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism is important, but it does not save you. It is faith that saves you. Noah and his family were not saved by the waters. They were saved from the waters. How? They were saved by faith to build the ark and faith to step into this big boat that it was going to get them safely through this flood. We are saved not by the waters of baptism, but it is our faith that we have put in Christ that saves us. The water of baptism are an opportunity to proclaim that faith, to symbolically demonstrate our faith. In fact, it symbolically demonstrates our union with Christ, right? As he died and went into the grave, so we go underwater. Christ rose from the grave, we come up out of the water, and we are symbolically washed clean. As Christ rose, we are symbolically washed clean, but make no mistake about it. It is our faith in Christ alone that gives any meaning, any power, any importance to what happens in baptism. In the waters of baptism, we are symbolically made clean, but it is only by faith in Jesus that we are actually made clean through his blood. It is through our faith in Jesus that we find new life. This Jesus, who, as Peter says in verse 22, has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He goes into heaven to his place at the right hand of God, his place of exaltation, his place of prominence, his place of authority, 
He is now, as it says in Hebrews, seated at the right hand of the Father. Because the work of making a way for us, the work of freeing us from the shackles of sin, the work of paying the debt of sin is done. He sits and waits until that time comes where he puts a final end to sin and rebellion to redeem and restore all things back to himself. He sits After having endured the shame and pain of the cross, he sits exalted, the name above every name, the one above and in control of all existence, that which we see and that which we don't see. He suffered for us on our behalf, and by it and through it, he was vindicated in the resurrected, exalted in the resurrection. Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus, even those names, even those knees of the rebellious spirits. He is in control of all things. Christ suffered. Christ is vindicated. We may suffer, Christian. You may suffer for your faith. We may do it, and if we do it for the gospel's sake, we will be vindicated because of and by our faith in Christ. You may suffer for your faith. You may endure hardship and trial and persecution, darkness on account of the goodness of the gospel. And the promise of God is that blessing and vindication is waiting The promise is that Christ is supreme. Christ is sovereign. And your suffering will not be ignored or forgotten. He who is over and above all sees all and will deal rightly and well. He will deal rightly and well with you. Whatever this world may throw at you, whatever may come, whatever suffering or hardship you may endure on behalf of the gospel, you will be vindicated. Satan, sin, death, Wrath, pain, misery, these things do not have the final say. They do not have the final words. Christ has the final say. Christ gets the final words. And his words are victory and triumph and hope and rest and peace. Those are what wait for you, Christian, by and through your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Today, we thank you for passages like this that make us use our intellect, make us use our brain, make us have to wrestle with things. You don't always just spoon-feed us every answer. You, you, you have us do some legwork to put in the work to understand you more, to know you more. God, give us a continuous hunger and thirst to desire to know you more. Give us a hunger and thirst to be in your word, to to hear from you. God, we thank you for sending your son to die for us. That through his death and resurrection, there is hope. There is something to cling to for us. There is something for us to hold on to. That we know that even in the resurrection, the resurrection isn't even the final end of the story that there is something even greater waiting for us, that we have that one day waiting for us where we get to be face-to-face with you. We get to be at that ceremony. We get to be at that wedding feast. We get to spend our days with you in perfect relationship with you, experiencing and trusting and relying wholly and completely on you and never being let down, never being forgotten or ignored, never being taken advantage of, but just being able to trust and rest in your presence, Lord. We long for that day. That day where there is no more worry, no more fear, no more death, no more pain, no more hurt. That day where we get to just be with you. Lord, in the midst of that, as we wait, 
We don't wait passively, we wait actively. That's what you have called us to. You have called us to wait actively. You have called called us to suffer well, to endure well, to dwell and abide in you well so that we might be able to enjoy your presence, so that we might be able to point others toward you, so that we might be able to be these lights of the world you have made us to be, that we engage with the world around us. We shine our light in our schools and in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at our jobs, in our families. And we do that with a purpose and a point to point others to you so that they might experience and understand just how good you are. They might be able to experience and understand the goodness of who you are as we have. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we go into this world that we would be encouraged and strengthened and reminded that no matter what this world may throw at us, no matter what we may have to endure, you are for us. You are paying attention and there is vindication waiting for us as we saw in Christ in his resurrection as he sits seated now in the throne at his place of exaltation. Lord, we we long for that day when we get to be in his presence. But until that day, we will seek to be the lights of the world you have made us to be. God, help us to do that because we can't do it without you. We pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name, amen.